0: Hey, we've been in um, a series in Luke chapter 15, so if you have your Bible, now's a good time to have that open, maybe have those uh, handouts handy. Um, We've been the last five weeks studying, beginning in verse 11 all the way up to verse 32 in Luke chapter 15. This is really kind of a centerpiece for Luke as he wrote the gospel of Luke remember Luke 19.10, which tells us that really the the whole center of what the gospel of Luke is about, and I gave that to you as a memory verse on the back of your handout, is the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And, and, and that's vital for us to know because it puts a mission for our lives. It, puts a mission as to what we're to be about and what we're to to be focusing on in life. And so Jesus gives three illustrations or three parables. Remember, parables are stories that are given to teach spiritual truths. And so he gives three different parables. One is about a lost sheep. Another one's about a lost coin. And this last one is about a lost son. And it's really not just about one son, but it's really about two lost sons and about this father's uh, amazing and extravagant grace that he showers upon his sons and the shame that he brings upon himself. And, you know, with a culture that's thousands of years removed and, you know, it's thousands of miles away, there's some details in there that aren't so easy to pick out. And so we've been picking out those details as we've been going along. So today you'll see the gracious father giving all kinds of good things to his rebellious sons. Remember, there's two rebellious sons in this parable. And so let me just take us right back into that parable. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to read along. I have it up here on the screen in the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 11 of the Gospel of Luke. This is how it reads. And he said, Well, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now, we've talked about how just disrespectful disgraceful and really according to mosaic law this this father should uh, have cast his son out just because of this particular request and if if you miss these these past messages let me encourage you to get the cds or get on our uh, website praisepoint.net and catch up with some of these details father give me the share of property that's coming to me And he divided his property between them. Well, that brought all kinds of disgrace upon his father, according to the way the village would have looked at him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So, he went and hired, last week we talked about how it's not a good word in the English, uh, I believe the King James, there's a couple translations that do a, a better job of really what this is about. He glued himself, he, he made himself an appendage to a Roman citizen of this faraway country which was, would have been outside of Israel's. So, he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens, that would be a Roman citizen of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pods, we've talked about the carob pods, that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. That's why it's Clear here that even this person that he kind of supposedly, according to this translation, hired himself out to, he didn't give him anything either. That's why the Greek word literally means he glued himself. And the idea was here if I go and if I go do this for this guy, maybe he'll help take care of me. And what he ends up finding out is this guy that he thought he was going to kind of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back kind of thing, he doesn't end up taking care of him in the long run. And so he ends up desiring for the pig slop that he's giving. To the pigs, which by the way, according to if you know any kind of stuff about Jewish, you know that Jews and pigs don't mix, right? It's completely non-kosher. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, He said, how many of my father's hired servants? We talked about how this is a day hire servant. And during the Great Depression, you see movies and you read books or hear stories about somebody going and hiring themselves out just for a single day to try to find work. In fact, in many third world countries, this is kind of how people are even employed today is they'll go and they'll hire themselves out for the day. But the next day, they might not have any work. This is the kind of servant that is being spoke of here. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I am, perish with hunger. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, literally in the Greek, I've sinned against God, and my sins are piled up as high as heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants, one of your day employees. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember, he's been rehearsing this his whole walk home. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found, and they began to celebrate. We're going to talk about some of those details here this morning. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. But when this son of yours came, who who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, this morning I pray that you would uh, open our eyes that we might see um, what you're doing in our own life. I pray that we would not be blind like the older brother, that we would not be blind like the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people of Jesus' day. I pray that we would come to the end of ourselves so that you could begin good works in us, so that we would be humble in heart, that we might receive you. Father, break down every barrier of pride that would prevent us from knowing you. Help us to experience you with humility, with great graciousness and love and just extravagant awe at who you are and what you've done for us. Father, I I just ask these things as humbly as I know how this morning. Pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to point out an awful lot of stuff to you that happened in this, this parable. And if you've missed some details... Up to this point, I really got to encourage you to go back, get those CDs, listen online. You can download them onto your smartphones or whatever you have as an iPod and listen to them, not because I'm promoting my own message, because I'm promoting the message that Christ has for us in this. I think that just a casual reading or, or a glossary reading over this will miss so much That Jesus was really trying to communicate to us. You you know, you had the scribes and the Pharisees who were kind of the churched people. Actually, they were the religious leaders of Jesus' time. If anybody knew their scriptures, it was these guys. And these were the guys who were teaching everybody else. And so, so many people missed what the heart of God was all about. These people thought that they knew the scriptures, but it was fascinating, in knowing all the scriptures, they still didn't even know who God was. And I think that that's a very scary proposition, that there's people who are going to churches all around the United States and all around the world today, that they have heard the scriptures, but they still miss who God is. They still don't get the heart of God. And that's that's scary, because... There's many people, just like the Pharisees and scribes, who are deceived in thinking that they know God, and the reality is, is that they don't. Oftentimes, we can see that portrayed because of of attitudes. Well, so far, we've, we've looked at the shame that the younger brother had brought upon himself. Let's face it, the picture that Jesus paints here, and we probably miss it because of our culture being thousands of years removed and thousands of miles removed, and we, we miss the details, but I hope that you've gotten, if you've been here for the series, I hope that you've gotten, Jesus is painting a picture of the vilest person that you can imagine. Like, just imagine in your mind, like, the worst sinner that you could possibly think of and what that person would do and what they would do to get to that lowest state. In fact, the Pharisees and scribes had painted such a picture that they thought that this guy was completely unredeemable. Now, think, paint in your mind a picture of someone that you think is completely unredeemable. In fact, they thought that God would have great joy in literally obliterating The life of this person, that's anything but the picture that Jesus paints. In fact, that's the reason because they had those hard attitudes that Jesus even tells the parable. So the younger brother is filled full of shame. He does all kinds of shameful things. He's the lowest of low. He's the most disgraceful. If anyone's beyond redemption, it's this guy in the mind of the people that Jesus is speaking to. And then on top of that, the father does all these dumb things, at least culturally dumb, and he does some things that are just strange and outside of the normal traditions of Jesus' time. And so he, in doing these kinds of things, brings all kinds of shame upon himself And what we're going to study here this morning is he even heaps even more shame upon himself by accepting his son back. And I hope that you're catching on and that you're catching in your heart and in your mind that this is exactly the picture of Christ taking on our shame so that you and I might live and so that you and I might be restored. The great shame that God brought upon himself in reuniting us with himself is extravagant and probably beyond our degree of comprehension. In fact, even the best of us is still filled full of sin, and we are are wicked other than Jesus Christ changing us. The shame and disgrace that he initially brings upon himself and his family He's written off. In fact, they would have done a funeral, as we're going to learn next week, they would have literally performed a funeral in that culture, and that's why he says twice, my son was dead and is now alive. They would have done a thing in, in, in uh, Hebrew, they call it a kaddish. They would have had a ceremonial funeral, and in every rite within the family and within the community, he was dead. And that's why the father says twice he was dead and now he's back to life. So he brings all kinds of disgrace upon himself, upon his family, upon his community. The magnitude of his sin is probably more than what we can comprehend because of our culture being so far removed. And the father had every right not to bow to his own son's sinful position, but he did so, why? Why? Out of his extravagant love. Out of his extravagant grace. And that's where we're picking up this morning. So I want to pick up in verse 20 this morning. I want to take us back there for just a moment. This is this point where he says, And he arose... He came to himself. Remember in verse 19, he came to himself. He has this light bulb moment. By the way, I think that that was God beginning to work in his heart and in his mind, and where he begins to remember. It's fascinating. He's rejecting his father. He's rejecting his father's value systems. He's rejecting everything that his family stands for. And that's why he even left in the first place. And now it's fascinating because of how the father had acted initially. That's what he's recalling now. And that's the only thing that he's banking on his father's love, and his father's grace. So he arose, came to his father, look at this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now listen, I've heard and you've heard perhaps many sermons that talk about how his father was looking longingly every day, maybe standing at the edge of of his own home or on a balcony, kind of looking longingly. for And I don't know if that's the picture that is being painted here. It, It could be, but it could also be that, have you ever had one of those divine moments where you just look at the right place at the right time and you happen to see something that you never would have noticed? It could be that that's also what's happening here. We don't know, but what we do know is that the Father sees him while he's still a long way off. In other words, he sees him while before he even gets to the edge of town so because of the hill hill country in israel if you've been to israel or if you've seen pictures of israel you can quickly kind of imagine how it's easy to see a long way off so while he's still a long way off his father felt compassion and this is just much more than oh there he is that's much more than that, and we're going to talk about that, how we know that, in just a couple minutes. And he ran, by the way, this is absolutely disgraceful for a noble Jewish man to run and to do what he did. And he embraced him, and he kisses him. What is, this is big here. Like in the Jewish culture, what you're reading here is much bigger than what we get in our modern English culture. The young man returned, and the father showered undeserving love upon the man. What a picture, right? And you and I know that this is not what the younger man was expecting at all, right? Because he was expecting exactly what he should have deserved according to Jewish tradition. We've talked about this already in our series, that he would have came back and his father would have let him sit out in the town square for a couple days and people would have heaped insults upon him and they would have said all kinds of disgraceful things upon him. He would have stunk and then eventually the father would have sent a servant because he was a noble man. He would have sent a servant. He would have brought him before him. He kind of would have played it cool and coy and then he would have told him how many years he had to serve in order to be even considered to be in his household once again not even the rights of, of the full established rights of a son this is what everybody would have been expecting That's not what happened. By the way, a beautiful picture of the exact same way that God embraces us when we repent. Because remember, that's what the central theme of this parable is about. The joy that God gets over a repentant individual when we finally come to the end of ourselves, when we repent and turn away from our sins, turn towards God, God openly embraces us. In fact, here, He runs to us, and He'll bring every bit of shame upon Himself. He'll put our shame upon Himself just because of how much He loves us. We can't know exactly what it looked like Um, But somehow, in some way, the father noticed him while he was still a long way off. And so what happens here is the father sees him, and you know what he's doing? He's protecting him from the insults and the injury and all of the things that the community would have heaped upon him the moment he stepped foot into the village. Because his reputation was sealed, right? They had his funeral already. Everybody knew about the disgrace that this guy had. It was well known among the community, right? You guys know how word spreads in small towns, right? You've never seen that before, I'm sure. But that's exactly... What would have been heaped upon him walking foot into this village for the first time. And so the father protects him from that injury, from that insult, from all of those bad things by meeting him before he even gets to the edge of the village. And he feels compassion. Now, he felt compassion. What we translate in English is those three words. He felt compassion in the Greek is all one word. And what it means is that he had such a deep pity that he had a churning in his bowels, right? Uh, If you loved somebody um, in the ancient world, um, we say you love them with all your heart, right? Oh, I love you. And we see those pictures of Cupid coming up in February and he's always shooting hearts, right? In the ancient world, they would have been shooting kidneys and bowels. Um, Just saying, quite a different picture there for you if you love somebody you love somebody with all your kidney or you love somebody with all your bowels right it's because have you ever felt have you ever felt um such a compassion for somebody that i mean you just feel it in your stomach or or have you ever felt anxiety and what what happens your stomach churns right or you get an ulcer, or or you feel something down in your bowels. And they knew that in the ancient world, and they had words to help describe that. And so what he is saying here is that he felt such a deep compassion and such a deep pity upon his returning son and probably the condition that he was in, that he felt that pity all the way down to the depth of his bowels. And if you've ever loved somebody and they've so much, and they've been in such a bad place. There's times to where it just, I mean, it breaks your heart. Have you ever gotten those really hard news things at times? Maybe someone died very close to you, and all of a sudden you feel your kind of your chest sink and your heart, and, and you almost feel in your gut just a, a mourning. This is what the Father is feeling, and this is what His Audience would have understood. Well, another picture that is painted here is about him running. Now, listen, today, running is, um, running is admirable. If I'm running, somebody's chasing me. You know, in our culture today, you run, you get to stay fit, and in that culture, little boys and servants ran, not noblemen, okay? In fact, the dress or, or the garb, the outfit that a nobleman would have had and a servant or a little boy would have had, a servant or a little boy would have had um, kind of just like um, a sash, or we might call it a dress, that would go just to right above the knees. Right, It's because you can move around. A, a, a field worker, uh, the hired servants would have had um, uh, clothes that just came right to above the knees, but a nobleman in Jesus' time, or a rabbi like Jesus, would have had a long robe that would have went all the way down to the ground, and when that long, have you gals, have you ever tried to really run and address? I mean, and the Greek word here is sprint. Like this is not just kind of dainty running or this is not kind of a jog. This is a sprint. That's the actual Greek word. So have you ever, gals, how many of you gals have ever tried to sprint and address? Has anybody, any gals in here ever tried to sprint and address? I see one hand. Anybody else? Two hands. Is that easy? She's like, eh. <sighs> Got it. I would imagine it's not really easy, and what happens, and what the ancient world would have understood is he would have had to pull up his 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 gown, his clothes, and it probably would have pulled it up to above the knees. Now, for a nobleman in in this culture, and it's, by the way, it's the same in the Middle East today, for them to expose their calves and their knees is disgrace. It's an, it's an absolute disgrace. So Jesus' culture would have understood that by this nobleman running, he's bringing disgrace upon himself. Like, that's just not culturally accepted. But why does he bring disgrace upon himself? Because he doesn't want what? Disgrace to come upon his son. And that's the same picture that we should get that God paints for us. God has brought great disgrace continually and shame upon himself. Why? So that we would not be the recipients of that kind of shame. Here's the picture that they would have gotten a wealthy nobleman, an honorable man. He breaks every form of dignity and he sprints to his returning son. Why? He could have sent, by the way, a servant to, retur- to, to fetch him back. Could have said, hey, go get him as quickly as possible. But he didn't. Why? Because of his extravagant love for his son. His intense love for him. The father wants the boy to avoid shame and pain that he really deserves. The ridicule of the community that should have come upon him. So what he does is he runs to the edge of town, brings shame upon himself, and covers him. He, he kind of puts his, his head upon him embraces him and kisses him. And you know what that means in that culture? That's just not saying, son, I love you. That's saying, son, I accept you. That's what an embrace and a kiss and that culture meant. It's not, son, I'm just saving you here until we gotta go have a talk out by the woodshed. This is, son, you have been through your living hell And I'm accepting you home. And here you have a picture of a guy who's probably absolutely reeks. Long walk home. Um, He had been a servant. Once he had been wealthy, then he became a servant. Had no feet or no, no, um, no shoes or sandals on his feet, walking barefoot on a rocky terrain, hot sand. Have you ever walked on hot sand, hot rocks? Yeah, that's not really comfortable, is it? And that's what he had been doing. And and he had been around pigs, which is just an absolute stench and a reproach upon the Jewish people. Yet, what does the father do? He embraces all of that stench and filth and meets him right where he is at. Why? Because he loves him. And do you see the picture? The picture is when God comes and runs to us and embraces us, sometimes we have it in our minds that we have to get our lives straightened out before we can turn back to God. That's not it at all. You can't get your life straightened out. That's the point of salvation. You need God to come in right where you're at and fix all of that stench and to make you his son once again. The sin and the depravity that this young lad had been through was extravagant. Pharisees and the scribes didn't get what was happening, but I hope that you're getting the picture. When we finally come to the end of ourselves, when we finally return to Jesus, he runs to us, ready to forgive our offenses, no matter how grievous. Again, this is a, 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 in the minds of the Jewish people there, an unredeemable person. So even if you feel that you're completely undeserving and unredeemable, you know the reality of it is, is all of us are that. <laughs> None of us deserves anything good. We rightly deserve judgment and punishment, but it's only through Jesus Christ that we can travel that path of redemption. Do you get that? I hear folks say sometimes, you know, that just isn't fair that God is doing that. Well, you don't want fair with God. Because fair with God would mean that you and I would endure judgment and punishment and eternity in hell. We want what? God's extravagant grace. The truth of the matter is, none of us want God to be fair. We need God's love and his grace. So the father runs to this lad. He falls on this stinky, smelly neck and it's a picture of how Jesus accepts us. It's a beautiful picture because he finally repents and, and he also confesses his sin. Do you remember how part of the component of repentance is, is, is confessing our sin? Look at verse 21. He says to him, Father, and this is a, is a dualistic Greek verse to, or, or Greek phrase to where he's saying, Father, I've sinned against God, and my sins are so high that they're piled up as high as heaven. That's what this uh, phrase in the Greek means. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I've sinned against God. My sins are as high as heaven, and I have also sinned against you. So he confesses rightly his, his extravagant sin before him. That's a component of repentance, right? Remember, repentance begins with a clear understanding of your sin, and you can only clearly understand your sin through the revelation, the opening of our eyes that Jesus does. So, if the Pharisees weren't horrified enough, if their jaws hadn't dropped by now, wait till they see what happens next. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Now, you've got to get what's happening here. These are extravagant things in the Jewish culture. Quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him, put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Here's what you've got to get. The best robe was the patriarch's robe. Who was it? The best robe was what? The father's robe. And it was the only worn, by the way, on special occasions um, when very prominent guests would come into town, uh, weddings, you know, celebrations. And here's what, the, here's what the father says, bring my robe, put that on him. And isn't that a beautiful picture of what God does in covering us? By the way, we're going to hit a little bit more on that in just a second. It was a gift of honor. By the way, the family ring was placed on his hand. The ring would have been um, a signet ring. It would have, have had some kind of a symbol on it. And that symbol on it, in, in the ancient world, oftentimes they would seal things with wax. We read about seven seals in the book of Revelation. That was because it's sealed, and it's sealed with authority. So the signet ring is... Is important. He's just not making him pretty and dressing him up. Whoever held that ring, what happens is that they can conduct business with the family for the family, and they had full family authority. So immediately, you and I would expect it to take years for full restoration to take place. And what does he do? He immediately puts a ring on his finger and he says, listen, you can conduct business for the family. You're automatically, boom, back in the family and you have the full authority of our family. I, I mean, to us, we, don't you almost just want to have a sense of justice and saying, come on now, this is just extravagant. That's the point. That's the beauty of our salvation, Lastly, you wouldn't think much about putting the sandals on his feet. You wouldn't think that that means an awful lot. But you've got to know this in the culture. Not everybody wore sandals. And in fact, very few people who were not noblemen actually wore sandals. Um, you had some rabbis, you had the religious teachers, they would have wore sandals. And what is happening here is putting sandals on him is symbolic of him being accepted back into the family because a family member of a noble family would have sandals on his feet. And what he's saying is, is you don't have to go out and live out there in the field. I'm not going to just cast you out to live like a hired servant. You're coming back into my house. And isn't that exactly what Jesus says to us? Right? Right? He's going to a place to prepare a place for us. By the way, I know that we have songs that say it's a mansion. It's not a mansion. It's a room attached onto Jesus' house. We're being welcomed in to Jesus' house. Isn't that a a beautiful picture of restoration? Normally, servants wouldn't have sandals, but they put sandals on his feet. So what would have Jesus' audience heard? Let me give you the cliff notes of what I just said. What would they have heard? The robe? They would have seen that the father automatically honored his son, which is just bizarre. It goes against every norm of tradition and culture of the time. They put a ring on his finger, which is giving him a gift of authority. And, and the crowd would have been like, how in the world can you trust this guy who has just squandered his inheritance? You shouldn't have given it to him in the first place, and it was, that, it's just a whole stupid mess. But yet, he gives him this gift of authority and makes him a member of the family, and that's what the sandals are all about. Suddenly, he's restored to a place of sonship. This is anything but what the Pharisees and the scribes would have expected, right? And I, I, I love it because, do you, do you know, you remember it was really vogue It seems like it's been a few years back, but it's probably been 20 years ago. You guys remember when it was the WWJD bracelets and everything was WWJD, and whoever came up with that marketing ploy, I'm sure that they're doing okay, right? WWJD was everywhere. And we even say today, you know, well, what would Jesus do? Now, this is the degree of forgiveness that Jesus extends to us. And so if you're going to ask the question, should I do what Jesus does, what is the degree of forgiveness that we're to extend to our brothers and sisters? Do you get that? Do you get the picture? If you're missing that, just for a second, what that means is your forgiveness of somebody else might mean that you take on their shame. It might mean that everybody else in the world around you misunderstands your degree of forgiveness, that they don't get it at all. But isn't that the beauty of truly following Christ? The world is just perplexed at the degree of love that we should have. Now listen, do you remember the old hymn, they'll know that we're Christians by our love, by our love? Yes, they'll know that we're Christians by our love. Some of you remember that. I see some of you shaking your heads. Others are saying I'm completely oblivious to that. Now, why is it that we, as we self-identify with, uh, as, as Christ followers, that we don't show this kind of forgiveness, this kind of extravagant love to people? Right? If we truly are WWJD, what would Jesus do? This means that we need to change the inside of our attitudes about forgiveness, about love, about grace, Because one of the first things that we want to do, we want to run to our own idea of justice and we want to be selfish when somebody does something against us. What a a great lesson. What a practical lesson for us to learn because if you truly want to be like Jesus, this is the picture of what Jesus is like. And this is what we must at times act like because of his extravagant love. So let me give you a couple take-home thoughts in relation to those things. Listen, the cross is your and my sin and shame. While we were yet sinners, Christ, what, died for us. And the disgrace that he brought upon himself, or that was brought upon him because it was our sin, it wasn't his sin. And and I, I get very, very, very weary of people who self-identify themselves as, as Christians and, and, and yet when they look at somebody, the, the attitude and the way that they speak about them drives me nuts. I've given the example and I, I think it's very fair to share our former camp director Dave Stevens talked about how for years he wrestled with the attitude that folks who have tattoos and, and how they can know Jesus or not know Jesus. And God really worked hard on... How many of us have struggled with those kinds of things before? Not asking for a show of hands. It might not be that, but it might be some other issue, or this person has gone and done this, and oh man, you know what, can't wait till God gets a hold of them. Don't say it with that attitude, be praying for that person. I've been immersing myself in this parable, and I continue to see... One of the things that I've just continued to see is just how undeserving I am of the grace of God. You know, it's been actually a little bit humiliating for me, humbling, to sit and to think, you know, I have brought so much reproach upon Jesus in my life. And, you know, I come from one of those families that people would say, oh, that's a Cleaver family. Those are June and Lord Cleaver, you know, and... All those kind of things. Some of you remember the cleavers. Others of you are saying, I have no clue. It's not the Simpsons. <laughs> I continually see, you know, my inadequacies. I continue to see my sins, how vile those sins must be before God, and yet God loves me extravagantly, extravagantly. And that's one of the lessons that I continue to see in this parable, which leads me to the next thing. God's love is so costly. When, when we see the extravagance of God's love and grace, it, it might be easy for us to just be tempted to think, and some people wrongly think, that when, when we sin, that God just looks the other way and says, oh, I forgive you. That's not how it functions, that's not how God's forgiveness came about. You see, God's forgiveness came about not that he's just kind of looking over and say, oh, that's okay. Oh, it'll be okay. God's love cost him his only begotten son. You see, the book of Hebrews tells us and other places in the New Testament that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. We needed Jesus' blood for our behalf to be shed so that he could now be our intercessor and our high priest. The payment for our sins was the cross of Calvary and the pure sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Never forget that God's love is costly. And what I hope that that does in my heart and in your heart and in your mind and in my mind, I hope that that what that does is when I'm tempted to sin, I remember the cost that God paid. And remembering that keeps me humble, keeps me from not wanting to sin and to cheapen what Jesus Christ did for me. My last thing that I think of is this parable. You know what it really reveals? Unmerited grace. Unmerited grace. You and I cannot earn God's love. You would be maybe... Uh, surprised at how many, particularly Americans, but people who self identify themselves as Christians think that they're good enough. Or, or I've been so good, or I've done this. It is not by works that you're saved, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us, but by the grace of God that we have been saved. Not by works, because if it was by works, you and I would have reason to boast. By the way, the Old Testament, you weren't saved by works either. Some people will say, well, in the Old Testament, you were saved by works. That's not true either. It was grace in the Old Testament. It's grace in the New Testament. It's grace now. We've always been saved by grace. And you and I don't deserve that grace, That's what makes grace so amazing. Have you ever done something for those of you who are parents or grandparents? Have you ever done something for your kiddos that they just flat out don't deserve? Like there's times that you're just like, "Dude, you so don't deserve this." But I love you. I guess I'm going to give it to you. Sometimes we have that. That's not the attitude that God has. God has even a more extravagant attitude of you are undeserving and I'm going to shower love upon you to such a degree that I'm going to take your shame upon me because I love you. We cannot earn God's favor. And there are so many churches today that teach this very idea. By the way, there are churches that will say, yes, it's by grace, but it's also by works. There are big churches today. The largest denomination in the world today teaches the same thing, by the way. You and I interact with people all the time who believe that they're going to be somehow be saved by works. <clears throat> Wrong answer. It's only by grace. Only by grace. Not of works. The Bible is abundantly clear. You and I deserve judgment and punishment. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about how even our best work is a filthy rag. And it's a very, very specific type of filthy rag, by the way, that Isaiah is talking about. The best of our works is a bloody, filthy rag before Jesus. That's why you and I, what we bank on is God's grace. Now, there's so much more to teach, but I'm out of time. I've been out of time. You said, how long do I want to preach? I always take my time no matter what, don't I? Listen, this morning, I don't know where you're at. Let me invite the worship team to come up. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've been through. You know, I, I, I can't see your heart, but God does. And you might be feeling today that you're just undeserving What a beautiful place to be in, to be quite honest. Because it's it's when we sense how undeserving we are that we kind of see how big God's grace is because all of us are extravagantly undeserving. So this morning, if you're sensing that, let me encourage you to turn to Jesus. Repent. Turn away from your sins. and Watch how he runs to you and showers his grace upon you. I, I, I just can't cast that picture any better than Jesus did in that parable. So this morning, can I just ask, would we bow and have a quiet moment or just do business with Jesus? You may not know how to pray or what prayer really is. It's just in your heart and mind, whether you speak it out loud or whether you think it in your mind and heart, it's just talking to Him. Father, this morning, I hope that your people are talking to you. Father, I I begin to see my sin and it's ugly. I begin to see the disgrace that I've brought upon you and it's violent. And it's only in your extravagant love that you've reached out and redeemed me. And you've changed me from the inside out. through that that I'm not perfect, but I am being redeemed and changed, remade new. Father, I thank you for your love for me. I thank you for your love for each person here this morning. I pray that while we are still a long way off, you run to us. Help us to know you intimately and personally Help us to be changed because of our sins, because of where we've been. I, I, I pray that we would change our minds and that we would change our ways, not because of a sense of duty, but because we really begin to get your love for us. Father, I, I thank you for each person who's here this morning, and I pray that your words, not mine, have spoken to hearts and minds the giant sermon-sucking black hole of the parking lot. When we walk out of this building, I pray that it doesn't take away the things that were sown in our hearts and minds. Use it in a way that you see best. Father, I just pray that you would be glorified in all things. I pray this and I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.